Hello, friends, and welcome to the Nugget Climbing Podcast. This is Stephen Dimmitt. A couple pieces of housekeeping before we get into today's episode. I put out a new follow-up episode with Alex Johnson last week, in case you missed the teaser for that. Alex returned to Bishop a couple of months ago, and she succeeded in completing her decade-long goal of climbing the swarm. We talked about that one in our first conversation. She was very public about trying it the first time around in her early 20s, and she wasn't able to do it. And we had a conversation back in the fall about what it was like to fail publicly like that. And this time around, she snuck out to Bishop quietly, and only her girlfriend knew she was trying the swarm, and she got that thing done. So a huge congratulations to Alex, and it was awesome to connect with her again and hear all about it. So if you want to check out that, there is a free teaser right there in your episode feed. And I want to take this opportunity to clarify the follow-ups and this whole Patreon thing, because I've been hearing that some of you are confused about that. So every time I put out a teaser, you'll see those pop up in your episode feed for the regular podcast. I also put out the full version of that follow-up the same day. And the way to get access to the full version is by signing up for Patreon. And I also want to clarify that the teasers are usually just the first quarter or the first third of the conversation. And I always try to save some good questions or maybe a deep dive into a fun or interesting topic for the later part of the conversation. So if you can't get enough of the podcast and you've been enjoying some of those teasers, there is a lot more content that you will get access to by signing up for Patreon. Right now, there are 16 follow-ups published, and as soon as you sign up, you get access to all of them, and you will continue to have access to all of them as long as you are an active patron, and you can cancel at any time. So if you decide it's not for you, that's great. No hard feelings for me. And the final thing I want to clarify is the length of the follow-ups. I believe I said in the ad roll at the end of the teasers that the follow-ups are 20 to 30 minutes in length and occasionally longer, but I really need to update that. Most of them have been more like 45 minutes to an hour, and a couple of them have basically been full-length episodes, an hour and a half, and I think one I did with Natasha Barnes was two hours. So again, a lot of great content in those follow-ups. And if you ever listen to a teaser and are wondering how much more of the conversation you are missing out on by not being a patron, I also list the length of the full version in the episode description that shows up in your podcast app. So if you're listening to a teaser and you scroll down, you can see the exact length of the full version right there. And you can decide if giving me $5 is worth it to listen to the rest of the conversation. So go check out my follow-up with AJ because she's a badass and that conversation was awesome. And check out those other teasers in your episode feed and consider signing up for Patreon. Uh, Patreon really has become the backbone of this podcast. And at this point, I could not be doing it without you guys. I really appreciate all of the support and I probably don't say thank you enough. So Thank you, patrons, so much for your support. It really does mean a lot. And every patron really does make a difference. It makes my day every time I see a new sign-up, and it means the world to have your support. All right, Eric Hurst is my guest today. Eric is the force of nature behind trainingforclimbing.com. He's authored several books on training for climbing, including a book by that very name, 
He also hosts the Training for Climbing podcast, which is a treasure trove of information on training, kind of a lecture style where Eric unpacks different topics related to training and performance in each episode. And Eric is a total lifer climber himself. He's been climbing for over 40 years and he still climbs 513. In fact, he recently climbed his first 513C, so he's climbing harder than ever at age 57. And his sons are both total crushers as well, both climbing 514 and his son Cameron recently sent Bone Tomahawk, that route that Joe Kinder put up in the Fin Cave, which might be 515A. It sounds like it's either 15A or 14D slash 15A, depending on who you ask. So super awesome and a big congratulations to Cameron. This is a two-part episode. I'll be putting out part two next week. In part one, we talked about Eric's career as a meteorologist and some of the similarities between predicting the weather and training for climbing. We talked about his early years in climbing and some of his early route development in Pennsylvania and in the New River Gorge. We talked about how training has evolved over the years and what's changed. We talked about the different effects that campusing and hangboarding have on our fingers. That was super interesting. And Eric shared a couple mistakes that he had been making in his core training for many years and how he has course corrected and he shared his current approach to training your core to climb harder. Lots of great stuff in this episode and I really enjoyed talking with Eric and I hope it's helpful. Please enjoy part one with Eric Hurst. Okay, well let's let's let her rip and I'm happy to talk about anything, you know, because I've been climbing for, <laughs> for I'm on year 45 now. So there's a lot of territory yeah. to, to cover. Uh, you know, obviously my involvement in training for climbing is probably longer than anybody on the planet uh, when it comes to, you know, I wrote my first articles in the 80s, in the 1980s on the topic. So uh, you know, so I can speak to on a lot of topics. Uh giving my opinion and thoughts on things. So, you know, let her rip. Yeah, perfect. I'm really excited for this conversation because of exactly what you you just alluded to. And my idea for this conversation is really to kind of follow these two arcs. And the first one is, you know, given that you have had a foot in this training world, training for climbing world longer than just about anybody, I think you you did write the first training books or some of them. And you continue to update your books. That's something I really appreciate about your writing is you revisit the research, you own the things mm-hmm. that have evolved and changed and and you update your, your literature. But one of the biggest uh, topics that I'd love to dive into is how you've seen training evolve. And then mm-hmm. I think another really fun topic would be, you know, now that you have two grown boys and they're both total crushers, they're climbing really hard, 14 plus, um, 515, It'd be really interesting to explore how their training has changed or or, or how their training differs rather from your own or, you know, someone like me who's 31 years old but started climbing much later in life. So those are kind of the things I want to dive into today, along with some of your own climbing background. I think that'd be a really fun place to start because that's something I actually don't know much about. Yeah, sure. How how old are you, Stephen? I'm 31. 31, okay. Yeah, but before all of that... I would love to kick things off actually by asking you about the weather. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> yeah. This is a this is a rumor I had heard, and I was like, I have to find out about this. I someone told me that you were a weatherman in a past life, you know, so to speak, before really diving into training for climbing. Right. I actually did uh, TV weather, uh, you know, like the weather guy standing in front of the green screen. Uh, that was a long time ago. It was 1988 to, to 1992. Um, so we're talking 30 years ago. But my uh, my college degree from Penn State in the mid 1980s was in meteorology. Uh, you know, when I was uh, a teenager getting into climbing, my other passion was the weather. And you know, climbing is affected by the weather. So they really, uh, in my mind, were quite related. Uh, and so that led me uh, down two paths. I've kind of through my life had two careers and two passions, one being uh, rock climbing and training for climbing and the other being uh, meteorology. And so while my TV career was brief, uh, it, it wasn't a career that I thought was sustainable and uh you know, didn't mesh well with my desire to travel a lot as a climber. Um, I, I did stay involved in meteorology. I, I worked at a university, Millersville University in Pennsylvania, for 30 years. Uh, it was kind of a, a nine-month-a-year job, you know, during the semester, fall and spring semester. I was the director of the Weather Center. And so it gave me a, a stable job through my climbing life, Uh you know, health insurance for my family. But I also had the summers off because as a university position, I, I didn't have any real obligations during the summer season. So that kind of, uh, you know, it was the mode I was in for many years. I was a climber and a training for climber, you know, a coach. Uh, but I was also had this university job nine months of the year, kind of a nine to five job that gave me security for my family. Hmm. Um, now I'm since retired from that job and, you know, I'm, uh, you know, still active as a climber in my fifties. And I have this new company, Fizzy Vantage, that we could talk about a little bit later on uh, that I started that I'm really, that's the focus for me uh, here the last few years. Um but yeah, I mean, I'm always, I'm the type of guy that uh, is passionate about life and uh, I, I've worn a few different hats uh, over the years. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I had to look into it for myself. So I found an article last night from the Lancaster, Lancaster online, maybe newspaper, uh -huh. I guess. And it was talking yeah. about your, your retirement. It sounds like it was just last year that you retired. It was last year. Yeah. I mean, I, um, Again, you know, having a family and needing health insurance for my kids, I hung on to that job a long time, and uh, and it was a good job. You know, working in the university environment is awesome. Uh, I was blessed to have that position, but um, you know, you get older in life, and you have uh, fewer uh, days left to to climb hard, and uh, your time becomes more and more valuable. And so, uh, you know, in the last couple of years, my you know, starting this company, Fizzy Vantage, uh, you know, things had kind of run at its course. Uh, with uh, the university job I felt. And so I retired and, um, you know, uh, I don't wanna say I'm a full-time climber cause I'm still working, you know, more than 40 hours a week. But, uh, you know, the focus of what I do is now pretty much hundred percent climbing related. Mm. Uh, that must feel really good. I, I wanna read a short paragraph from this article. Uh, you were called a superhero. And there's a quote from uh, a, a gal that works at the university that was interviewed and she wrote, I have his autograph in a little frame on my bookshelf because we all consider him a superhero, said April Hershey, superintendent of the Warwick School District. She sent many an anxious email to Hearst 
asking for his best advice about a predicted storm. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm kind of a um, yeah, I'm kind of a snowstorm uh, fanatic. You okay, know? and uh, you know, I'm not so much for severe weather and tornadoes. That's not my cup of tea when it comes to the weather. I enjoy a good snowstorm, and so you know, that's kind of I guess my specialty was uh, forecasting nor'easters here. You know, I'm in Pennsylvania, and so those are you know, some of the most impactful events here in the Northeastern U.S. are these big nor'easters. And so uh, in past winters, you know, uh, one of the things I did was uh, would um, brief, you know, media and, you know, various um, organizations and businesses uh, on, you know, an up, upcoming storm. And, uh, you know, so I'm uh, definitely a scientist, you know, whether it's with regard to training for climbing or whether it's, you know, my university position, I've been, you know, I, I, I am, a very analytical person and like solving complex puzzles, which is what the atmosphere is. And it's what rock climbing is and training for rock climbing is. Hmm. Uh, and so uh, the two, while quite different, kind of uh, both leverage a skill set that I've developed and that, you know, I was kind of naturally born into, um, you know, as a youngster, you know, the whole math and science thing. And so uh, it's, it's done me well, I guess, in both career paths. Mm. Uh, but, you know, uh, again, there hasn't been a year since college that I haven't written articles or books about training for climbing. So, you know, I really truly did have two career paths over a very long period of time and, you know, I had uh, these two passions and I was able to really compartmentalize those two jobs. Uh, you have to, you know, to have a system to be able to be able to function at a high level um, in two very different, you know, roles and, uh, to be, um, you know, trying to be prolific in both roles in terms of, you know, what I generate and the quality of what I put out. Mm. Uh, I have very, uh, you know, tight, um, or high expectations, you know, whether I'm putting out a training article or a podcast, uh, or writing a book, uh, or whether I'm, you know, working with students at the university, uh, you know, I am always, striving to be kind of a, you know, an A grade uh, presentation, though I, I fall short, you know, and, and have uh, certainly, you know, had my mistakes, whether it's a you know, weather forecast or, you know, even in training for climbing, there's a lot of things I've changed my mind on over the last 30 years. And, mm. uh, you know, when it comes to what is useful for climbers uh, in terms of training and, so I'm uh, not shy about admitting I got something wrong and, uh, you know, correcting uh, the record. And that's why I do uh, update my training books every, you know, five or six years. You know, Training for Climbing is on its fourth edition and it's got, oh, seven or eight foreign translations. And, uh, you know, so it's a resource not only used by climbers here uh, in North America, but around the world, which that's really cool. You know, I, I kind of joke that I'm recognized uh, here in Lancaster, Pennsylvania as the weather guy, <laughs> but internationally I'm recognized as the climber and the climbing mm. coach. Uh, and so uh, that's pretty cool. That's very cool. Very cool. And I, I want to dive into to that book and how you got into that in a second here. But I, I have to ask one more weather question because I, I find it so funny, you know, us climbers, especially when we're projecting and getting close on a project, we all become amateur meteorologists. You yeah. know, we, we all have like three different weather apps on our phone and we're cross-referencing and, oh, when, when do you think's the time, the best time of day to, to try for the red points and all this sort of stuff. And I don't know, the humidity is a little higher today. Should I rest? Should I wait? Uh, do you have any practical 
tips or or uh, pieces of advice or, or anything that you've drawn on from this wealth of experience as a weatherman meteorologist uh, and applied to red pointing and hard climbing? Well, yeah, I mean, especially here in the eastern U.S., where humidity is just a, a constant factor, or you know, it is most of the year, and uh, you know, the humidity can change dramatically day to day here in the east. Whereas in the west, things tend to be a bit more stable. Um, and if it does rain or snow, it's gone usually in a day or two, whereas things linger much longer here in the east. But I guess kind of in terms of giving something actionable uh, to listeners, you know, the, the best send conditions are kind of like what is your, you know, best training program or your best diet. It has to be very personalized because, mm. you know, everybody has different skin conditions. Uh, you know, I have very dry skin. Uh, my one son has very moist skin. And so for for us, you know, the best sand conditions are going to be a little different. I often, you know, when I'm out West, uh, you know, like a little more humidity in the air because of my dry skin. Mm. Uh, whereas in the East, you know, often, you know, people with sweaty hands are just, you know, <laughs> you know, praying for a drier and lower humidity day. So, uh, and, and temperature, same thing. I have Raynaud's syndrome, which is kind of a mm. micro circulatory disorder, you know, kind of a genetic thing in the fingers and toes. And so if the temperatures blow about 50 degrees or 48 degrees Fahrenheit, my fingers and toes turn numb. Mm. So I can't climb on cold, windy days. Whereas, you know, my older son, Cameron has his shirt off at 48 degrees, you know, <laughs> when he's working on a route. So uh, yeah, the, the best sand conditions uh, are very personalized. And, uh, you know, so um, if you're climbing with a few other people, you might have to, you know, it might make for a challenging, you know, kind of planning out the day, you know, one person might need sunshine to climb their best and another might need shade. <laughs> Interesting. Well, well, thanks for all that. That's, I'm so happy. I don't know why, but I'm so happy that that rumor turned out to be true. Cause that, I, <laughs> that's just great. <laughs> it's a fun glimpse into your past life. Yeah, I was going to say somewhere there's some old VHS tapes floating around <laughs> with uh, me uh, doing TV weather when I was, you know, age, you know, 21, you know, right out of college. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the funny thing was back in that era in the late eighties, early nineties is when I was a, a prolific route developer at the New River Gorge, you mm. know, the New River Gorge just kind of, um, became, you know, known, uh, and was an early sport climbing area in the Eastern United States. And I was one of a small group of players there bolting routes. And so, you know, I would be by day, uh, you know, a TV weatherman. And then I would jump in my car and go to the, uh, to the new for a, a couple of days and be, you know, drilling bolt holes and, you know, uh, doing first ascents. <laughs> and then I, I drive six hours home and I'd be back on TV the next day. And, uh, it wasn't sustainable, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's amazing. I mean, that's a great segue. I'd love to jump into your backstory and how you first got into climbing. Um, and, and then we can transition into, how training and writing about training for climbing yeah. came into play. But do you remember your first day of climbing? I sure do. It was in March of 1977. And uh, <laughs> my my older brother, uh, I have, uh, my older brother, Kyle, he's seven years older than me, had learned to climb when he was in college. And I was still, I guess, just coming out of junior high and wanted to, you know, try the sport. And my mom said, you know, uh, Climbing was totally unknown then. I mean, for many people, they can't even relate to what climbing was like in the 70s. There were no climbing gyms. There were no sport climbs. It was done by a very small group of generally eccentric people, a lot of mathematicians and physicists back in the 60s and 70s, you know, 
climbed like at the Schwangunks, one of my home areas. And so it was just an odd sport. Like I was the only person in my high school that climbed, whereas, you know, today it's a very common thing among high school students. And so um, long story short, uh, you know, my mom said, when you turn 13, Eric, you can uh, go climbing with your older brother. And so it was only a few weeks after my 13th birthday that we went out and did my first climb here in Pennsylvania. I think it was like a five, three. And, uh, uh, but it was, like many listeners can relate to that first day is all it took, you know, you, you uh, were hooked from the get go. And, uh, and back then there weren't many kid climbers. There was, I, I you could count on one hand, probably the teenage climbers in the United States, uh, people like Christian Griffith or Hugh Herr, uh, and uh, you know, myself and a few others uh, that got into it um, as teenagers. Now, most people or many people get into climbing through a climbing gym as a teenager. And uh, so um, I was kind of an early adapter to the sport and, uh, you know, it amazed, started this amazing lifelong journey for me where um, climbing has been a constant in my life since age 13 and I'm now 57. Hmm. Uh, so like I said, I'm on my 45th year now as a climber and uh, you know, other than my parents, Climbing has been the most constant thing in my life, and uh, I can't imagine life without climbing. Hmm. I got quite a few listener questions uh, for you, and I think I'm going to just filter them in because they cover a lot of different topics. But I have a question from Max. He wrote, I'd love to hear some history about his climbing in Pennsylvania. He's attributed to developing quite a few areas, and I'd love to hear what that was like and what the scene was like in those days. Yeah, well, the scene was very small. You know, there was probably in the state of Pennsylvania a dozen climbers back, say, in 1980. And again, they were mostly older guys, uh, and there was a few of us youngsters. Uh, Hugh Herr, Jeff Batzer, and myself were all high school students uh, at the same time and, and climbed together. And, uh, you know, it was trad climbing, you know, putting gear in. It was, you know, a lot of the routes here in Pennsylvania are poorly protected. Uh, we did a lot of top roping and then we did some very dangerous things. You know, <laughs> when I started climbing, uh, cams hadn't been invented yet. You know, so it was just putting <laughs> nuts in the rock and he eccentrics. Eccentrics. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it was, uh, it was, you know, a very uh, committing sport, especially for a teenager. I, you know, again, I uh, often think about some of the dangerous things I did as a youngster and uh, I'm happy I survived it, you know, uh, like climbing at the Schwangunks all those years on R-rated routes. And uh, so, yeah, I, uh, we explored and found boulders and cliffs, you know, road cuts, uh, you know, commonly were something we inspected because there's not a ton of natural rock in Pennsylvania. Uh, and so um, when we found cliffs, we developed them. Uh, Safe Harbor, which is now a very popular sport climbing area, uh, we you know, uh, a few of us and um, some of the older climbers uh, developed the first few routes there in the 70s and um, top roped. And then uh, with uh, the advent of sport climbing in the mid to late 80s, uh, Hugh Her and I uh, bolted a few, uh, a few of the first routes uh, along the Susquehanna River. Um, and uh, eventually it turned into hundreds of routes uh, which is now the safe harbor area, which is a uh, popular, it's a road cut, but it's a pretty good road cut for Pennsylvania. Mm. And, uh, <laughs> uh, and then around Penn state, uh, when I was a student there for four years, there are some quarries. Uh, so we bolted these limestone quarries, which unfortunately are kind of closed, uh, to climbing these days because of liability concerns. Mm. Uh, and then the new river gorge, which I, uh, first heard about in, in uh, 1986 and traveled there. 
and did a, a 512A first descent on my first weekend oh, at, wow. at, the, uh, at, the, at the New River Gorge. Uh, and I saw miles of undeveloped stone. And so that caught my eye as it did, you know, uh, other people like Doug Reed and Porter Gerard and Rick Thompson and Mike Arts and Eddie Bagoon. You know, there's about a half a dozen of us, uh, Kenny Parker, you know, that, uh, you know, got very busy there uh, for uh, five or 10 years and helped the New River be born uh, in, in terms of what it has to offer today, which is a lot of world-class climbing. Hmm. So yeah, it was uh, a, a very fun time. And I invested uh, a lot of days, uh, you know, putting up first ascents. And it's it's really gratifying to see those areas still popular today. That's incredible. I got a question from Adriel about uh, your time in the New River Gorge too, and, and whether or not you and Rick Thompson and Eddie Bagoon like how you heard about the new and whether you knew each other beforehand and, and just kind of what the atmosphere was like between uh, that cast of characters, you know, was there friendly competition? Was it, was it just this sense of, uh, you know, exploration and discovery? Can you paint a little bit more of a scene? Yeah. Um, so uh, the New River Gorge was, uh, you know, a climbing area, a trad climbing area with some excellent cracks uh, from the 70s into the mid 80s. And uh, there had been a few hundred routes put up that were all traditional lines, gear protected lines. And uh, my arrival at the New River Gorge happened to coincide with, you know, the beginning of, of uh, bolting. And uh, so I bumped into Rick Thompson, who was one of the you know, activists there putting up trad routes uh, on my first visit, I met him and we exchanged phone numbers. And uh, he, that winter, bought a Bosch uh, Bulldog drill uh, and invited me to come down. And kind of the rest is history. You know, he and I formed a partnership for several years and put up a lot of classic routes. Uh, we put up the first 513 at the New River Gorge, which there's now probably 100 513s. But uh, <laughs> I put up the first one in 1987, a route called Diamond Life. Uh, and so that opened up a new grade at the New River Gorge. Uh, in fact, when I arrived there, the hardest route, I think, was 12A or 12B. And within two seasons, we had the grades up to 13A, 13B. And at the same time I arrived, uh, Doug Reed, a tall Southerner, arrived. And uh, though we didn't climb together a lot, you know, he kind Kind of had his mission uh, and his eye for putting up new routes and, and 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 myself my own eye and so we were kind of developing at the same time and uh, he basically lived there whereas I made this weekend commute six hours each way and so uh, it was uh, I don't know that I would say it was a competition uh, because there was a you know half a dozen very active people uh, also putting up routes but it was kind of where we were all challenging ourselves to you know kind of find the great lines and, you know, uh, do the FAs of them. Uh, and, you know, back in that era, again, 13A was kind of the top grade or 13B. Uh, since then, of course, you know, there's now, um, uh, you know, 14 plus at the New River Gorge and Jonathan Seagrass put up uh, the first 15A at Summersville Lake uh, last fall. And so um, it's, you know, the climbing has, uh, you know, been amazing through that period. And we've seen the grades continually you know, travel from 13A in 1987 to 15A in 2020 with uh, Seagrass uh, first ascent. Mm. Do you have a favorite first ascent from that period? Does any one particular route really stand out to you? Or oh yeah, I mean, I've I've put up 200 routes at the new, and you know, over 400 <laughs> routes nationwide. So there's a lot to pick from. But 
uh, I don't know, uh, you know, a 12A called Bullet the New Sky and a 12B called The Gift of Grace. They're both classic uh, New River Gorge arete routes, uh, you know, very steep uh, arets, sustained technical, you know, classic New River Gorge technical routes where uh, a, a 514 climber could fall on a 12 because it's technical and maybe hard to decipher on first go. Mm. Uh, and, you know, so those are two of my favorites. And, um, uh, and I guess like welcome to conditioning and uh, just send it two routes I put up side by side uh, at Fern Buttress, uh, the left end of Endless Wall, our classic, you know, 13A, B kind of routes. Uh, and um, yeah, I mean, there's so many great routes at the New River Gorge. It's hard to, to pick a few. Mm. So it's interesting. You called yourself an early adapter as far as climbing goes in general, just because so few of your cohorts, your yeah. peers in school were doing it as a junior high school kid or high school kid. Um, and then clearly with training, you were one of the first people to at least be writing about it and really exploring it. You know, I've had a number of conversations on the podcast about the bolting wars, about the transition from traditional climbing to um, embracing sport climbing, not just as far as bolting goes, but also the tactics, the the hang dogging, the red pointing. Right. Do you remember how you thought of that when that transition started to take place? Was that something that you had any reservations about? Did it seem like the obvious uh, step forward? Do, do you remember kind of what that with regard to like with regard to the bolting, the bolt wars? And yeah, stuff? yeah. Just the transition into sport climbing. Do you remember how you felt about that at the time? Yeah, I mean, I was, I was, you know, you know, that was right in the prime time of my, you know, uh, route development career, uh, and so, you know, I started off as a trad climber, as all people did uh, that got into climbing in the '70s or early '80s, uh, and so that was, you know, what the accepted practice, you know, ground up climbing, putting in gear. Um, uh, and, you know, lowering to, believe it or not, at the gunks, you know, the old, uh, you know, uh, style was, you know, if you fell on a route, you would lower to the ground and pull your rope and start again, because, you know, it was a trad area. It was, everything was ground up. And then from Europe came the idea of rap bolting and hang dogging. And, uh, and it really quickly caught it on in a handful of areas like Smith Rock and uh, Shelf Road. Um, and, you know, in some of the front range crags of Colorado and at the New River Gorge and I, I guess New Hampshire as well, all kind of in the mid to late 1980s. And so for me personally, it was a, a, an odd transition because I, I got the idea that, I mean, I, I understood the concept that with bolts, we could protect these blank faces. Like at the New River Gorge, there are a lot of blank faces that are climbable you know, small holds, but there's no gear to put in. Mm. And so to have the uh, ability to put in just a couple of bolts, you opened up like a route like Diamond Life, the first 513 at the New River Gorge that I put up. Uh, it had, you know, three or four pieces of, of gear, and then it had two bolts to protect the blank section. Mm. And that's how, you know, 513 came about at the, at the New River Gorge. Uh, and so for me, there was a, a couple of seasons of transition where we were putting up mixed routes, not just me, I, you know, Doug and, and Rick and other climbers were doing the same thing because we were all trad climbers. And so to come in and just put a line of bolts up the cliff, putting bolts next to a, a potential, you know, TCU placement or nut placement seemed offensive to us. Mm. Uh, and, you know, whereas in Europe, they were just putting bolts in, you know, from bottom to top uh, at the sport areas. And so it took time for us to, to, 
kind of go through that transition. And so for the first couple of seasons, uh, when we were bolting, uh, we were putting up these mixed droughts at the New River Gorge in 1987, 1988, 1989. And then by about 1990, things had evolved to the point that, and it, I think it was Doug Reed first, you know, bolted a route out at Endless Wall called Legacy, uh, a classic 11 plus that had bolts next to a crack. And so it raised quite a stir. And the same thing was happening at other crags around the country at the same time. Uh, and that's kind of the bolt wars era in the late 80s. You know, at the Schwangunks, they started to bolt routes and that didn't last long because it was, again, offensive and an area with such a deep history of traditional climbing with, you know, no bolts. Um, whereas at the New River Gorge, it caught on and gained acceptance. And, and that's how it was across the country. Some crags, you know, held on to the old school ethic and other crags, things became more progressive. And so even at the New River Gorge by 1990, all of us who were developing routes started to put bolts in, even where there was some gear to be had. And in the case of some classic early routes like Diamond Life, which was originally a mixed route, I went back a few years later and just put in bolts the whole way hmm. because it quickly, you know, things evolved to the point that people would show up at the crag with just quick draws. Uh, and so right. they didn't have gear with them. Uh, they weren't going to climb a mixed route, you know? And so uh, things, yeah. And it's still in my mind, something that's kind of hard to reconcile because, you know, the old school trad in me, you know, <laughs> does kind of say, you know, well, it's not hard to put a TCU into a slot. Why would you put a bolt there? But then again, there is a beauty and a simplicity to sport climbing. And when the climbing gets hard, you know, putting in gear or putting in marginal gear when you might be falling a lot is an issue. And so I, I guess, made that progression myself by the early 1990s, as did most route developers uh, back then. And today, I don't think most climbers would think it's all that controversial. In fact, they probably don't even think of it when they go to a crag and clip a bolt next to, you know, a gear placement because that's just where the sport is at now. At least sport right. climbing is at. Yeah, they probably don't even notice. They'll only notice if there's no bolt there. They're like, what the hell? Exactly. <laughs> I don't have any TCUs. <laughs> yeah, and that's an interesting thing, Stephen, is that, you know, part of that transition to putting in a few bolts to – um avoid putting bolts next to gear placements, we, we were very conservative with our use of the drill. And so even at the Nerva Gorge, like today people go there and they're like, why is that first bolt so high? Probably at Smith Rock as well. Mm -hmm. You know, why is that first bolt 15 or 20 feet up? Uh, and it's because it was bolted in 1988 and that's how things were done. You know, you use the fewest bolts you could. Uh, and so the New River Gorge and Smith Rock, you know, those old classics are kind of spicy. Uh, whereas, you know, you get on a route that's been bolted in the last 20 years, uh, you know, at a place like Tensleep, let's say, or, you know, in Lander or, you know, anywhere. Uh, and the first bolt's seven feet off the ground. You can sometimes clip it while you're standing on the ground. <laughs> and, uh, so, so it's it changed quite a bit from, you know, 30 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> uh, a lot of people listening will have heard this, but I had a conversation with Alan Watts and I, I remember him saying something to that effect, like, hey, we weren't trying to be bold. We weren't trying to be brave. I was just hand drilling all of these holes with one drill bit. I think he I think he said he hand drilled like hundreds of holes with a single drill bit and didn't know that you were supposed to sharpen them. So he's just trying yeah. to spend as little time doing that as he could because he wanted to climb. So 
Yeah, yeah, it was an interesting time, and you know, the the history of climbing is is so interesting. You know how that all came about. I wish more newer climbers, people that got into the sport in the last decade, let's say, would. Um, I, I encourage climbers to become students of climbing. And my own sons, uh, you know, we have bookshelves full of books, which I've encouraged them to explore. And when we travel, uh, you know, as a family to climb when they were younger, you know, I try to share with them the history of climbing because there is such a rich history, uh, you know, and, and even when it comes to training for climbing, you mentioned that I was, you know, one of the first, very first uh, to talk about training for climbing and write about it, but really, I say the the godfather of training for climbing is a guy named John Gill, you know, the legendary boulderer who was doing climbing specific training in the late 1950s. So, uh, and he, of course, he was bouldering at a level that's kind of like V9 or V10 in the late 1950s. You know, he was just in his own league. Uh, and so that is the individual that I credit as kind of getting training for climbing started. And he was a big inspiration to me and my generation. You know, uh, Todd Skinner and I often talked back in, in our day uh, about how, you know, the John Gill Master of Rock biography was kind of a Bible to us. Hmm. Uh, it was a book written by Pat Ament back in the 1980s. And it documented just a little bit of Gill's training, you know, with weighted pull-ups and one-arm pull-ups. And, you know, that was kind of, uh, I mean, there was no training literature out. It was the you know, so the Gill book was like the closest thing that we as, you know, young climbers in the early 80s, you know, that was kind of the closest thing there was to a training manual was kind of just copying what this amazing guy, John Gill was doing, you know, so that kind of got me started. And then, you know, uh, I got involved with gymnastics in high school and, you know, mm. as a scientist, you know, started delving into sports science in the mid 1980s. I wrote my first training article for Rocket Ice magazine in 1987 and for Climbing magazine in 1988. And those were the first articles written, I think, in the United States on training for climbing. <laughs> uh, you know, so that was kind of the beginning of trying to popularize uh, training for climbing was back uh, at that time when I uh, you know, wrote those first few articles, which uh, in hindsight were so basic and actually quite dreadful, but um, I had, <laughs> I had, uh, you know, I, I had this idea that climbers could climb better if they trained. And back mm. then, nobody trained. Uh, in fact, here's an interesting little anecdote, uh, Stephen. Uh, when I first reached out to Rock and Ice magazine uh, and Climbing magazine to write a training column, both of them, their first response was, Climbers don't train. Why would we want to write something about training for climbing? Why would we want to, you know, dedicate a page or two of, of every <laughs> issue to training for climbing? And wow. so that was that was the mindset of 1986, 1987, is that climbers didn't train. They just climbed. Now, fast forward to 2021, and training for climbing is ubiquitous. I mean, you go to Instagram or you go to a website or your email list. And there's just a flood of training material uh, and literally people drown in it. You know, that's a whole nother topic is, uh, you know, I hear from climbers pretty much every day who say they just don't know who to listen to or what to do because there is so much material out there. So that's almost uh, this, a, a bigger problem than having a lack of material back in the, in the 1980s. But I twisted the arms of the editors and got them to, uh, you know, edit and uh, publish my first few articles. And then that, that started me on this path for 
the last 35 years uh, in studying and uh, trying to share uh, training knowledge because I, you know, I had, of course, benefited from the training I was doing back in the 80s. Um, and really, there were a few climbers who trained. It was the best climbers, you know, mm. uh, Lynn Hill, John Backer, uh, Ron Kalk, uh, Wolfgang Gulick, uh, you, know, the, you know, Todd Skinner, uh, the, those handful of, you know, leading edge climbers, you know, Alan Watts, uh, those folks did train. But what the editors of the magazine felt is they're readers of the magazine. You know, the mm. mass of climbers didn't train. And they were right. You know, there weren't climbing gyms and there was no literature. Uh, and so, you know, there hadn't been this paradigm shift yet. But uh, again, I was kind of, uh, you know, I was certain that there was a value in doing training, uh, both in helping you perform better and perhaps even reduce injury risk. And uh, so that, you know, was kind of, you know, lit the fire inside of me to um, start this journey of, uh, never ending learning and being very curious about the things that climbers can do uh, to support their passion. Yeah. Well, that is all very fascinating. I'd love to dig into uh, what some of your early training looked like. And we can start to kind of roll out the evolution and talk about the evolution of training and how you've seen it shift. But that's mm -hmm. so interesting. So you started in the 70s, you know, climbing on hexes and, you know, nuts, trad climbing. I can't imagine that there were any indoor uh, climbing facilities at all. You mentioned doing gymnastics in high school. I know uh, that's something likely that was influenced by John Gill because he was always leaning on um, gymnastics and using, you know, rocks as kind of gymnastics implements and thinking about it in that way. Yep. What were some of your earliest training experiments? Do you remember? Yeah, well, um, you're right. There were no climbing walls. The first climbing gym in the United States didn't open, uh, I believe, until 1988. Uh, in the Northwest, in Portland or Seattle, I believe, um, or maybe you know well, which. I think Seattle, yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, and I, there were a few indoor climbing walls in the UK because it rained so much. They, you know, I think they glued holds onto a brick wall and had, you know, that was kind of some indoor climbing there. Uh, and and what a few people from my generation did was uh, we would go in, you know, like what I did at my parents' house when I was a kid uh, is in the basement, I would uh, screw wood blocks onto the rafters. Uh, and so you could train for, for in my case, uh, the Schwangunks, which was my main climbing area in high school. Uh, the crux of most routes there at that time were going through overhangs, you know, climbing through roofs. And so uh, having blocks of wood on the rafters of your basement ceiling and climbing across them kind of developed the specific muscles and the posture you needed, you know, and the core tension you needed to to do those gunks roofs. And I, you know, credit some of my early hard ascents at the Schwan gunks to that very simple training, elementary training. And uh, as I said, in high school, I uh, ran cross country a couple of years and I joined the gymnastics team, mainly just because I saw Gil, you know, photos of Gil using uh, the rings. I had yet to talk to him at that time, though we did form a bit of a friendship in later years. Uh, he's an amazing guy, but, uh, you know, he inspired, you know, Skinner and myself and, and, and Lynn Hill to do some of that training. Uh, Lynn ran into uh, John Long and John Long got her into various types of training that included some weight training. And uh, so there were a, a few people, uh, Jim Collins in Colorado that uh, did some training, uh, but it was so basic, you know, lots of pull-ups. Uh, mm. It's kind of funny, uh, uh, Dwayne Raleigh, um, 
the former owner of Rock and Ice magazine, a climber of my generation, he once commented to me uh, a few years ago how he thinks back to how we as climbers in the 80s, we would do like hundreds of pull-ups a day just because there wasn't much else to do. <laughs> and the irony is that we spent, you know, most of the climbing back then you were standing on your feet, you know, it was slab climbing. <laughs> so why were we doing hundreds of pull-ups when we're climbing slabs? But the answer is it just seemed like, I mean, there wasn't much that we knew to do. And it seemed like an obvious thing that, you know, doing pull-ups uh, might be beneficial. And, and it was when it came to crack climbing, if you're climbing a long vertical, you know, crack, you know, your biceps can get pumped and doing a lot of pull-ups can be helpful, but no doubt we were gluttons for punishment and did a lot of things that probably didn't help our climbing at all. Uh, but um, the, the blocks of wood on the basement ceiling did. Mm. Uh, Tony Nero invented the death board, which is kind of overhanging uh, board with wood screwed on. So he kind of took what we were doing on the ceiling and tipped it more like at 30 degrees overhanging, which made sense to him because he was beginning to project routes that overhung that way, uh, you know, like in the late 1980s. Uh, and so slowly climbers kind of kludged together uh, different things that seemed climbing specific. Uh, you know, the hangboard was invented in the late 1980s. Uh, you know, I think Metolius and Entrepri had the first couple of hangboards that came out. And so that was an obvious tool that you could hang in your apartment or house and do some specific finger training. You know, most climbers back then uh, did a little bit of running because it was obvious that you needed to optimize your body composition and, you know, strength to weight ratio matters. It's a key performance indicator in our sport, especially if you're on overhanging routes. So you need to work on the strength, the numerator, but, you know, you also want to be thinking about the denominator. Uh, you know, you have to find kind of what is your optimal body weight, not too light, not too heavy, uh, and try to, you know, uh, get that strength to weight ratio um, at its highest. And, you know, so we were, we were kind of thinking through the things, but a lot of the tools hadn't been invented yet. And the climbing gyms, when they finally started to multiply across the country through the 1990s and into the 2000s, that was a game changer because then you could actually climb several days a week. If you were a city dweller, as I was and many climbers in the Northeast or on the West Coast were, we were city dwellers who were weekend warriors. You know, whether it was driving to Yosemite on the weekend or driving to the Gunks or the New River Gorge on weekends, uh, most of us had jobs or were in school. And uh, so the climbing gyms, the ability to have a home wall or to join a climbing gym in the city, that was a game changer because of course, climbing is first and foremost a skill sport. So if you wanna get better at climbing, you need to climb, you know, pull-ups aren't gonna get you there. Uh, and so that was, uh, you know, I guess the biggest change that really ushered in higher standards of climbing. You know, today, 512A, isn't really considered a, that hard of a grade. But, you know, 25 years ago, I wrote a book called How to Climb 512 because <laughs> back then, very few people climbed 512. It seemed like this, you know, distant goal to get to that grade. I mean, I'm talking in the 80s or early 90s, you know, 12A was considered really hard and 13A was elite. And, uh, you know, today those grades are quite common. You know, you climb a few years and do some of the right things and uh, you can climb at those grades. Uh, pretty much a normal person or everyday person can. And that's amazing. And you have to credit the climbing gyms as being the number one reason why, because mm. suddenly you could develop the skill set uh, more rapidly and uh, have a very specific way to train 
in your home on a home wall or at a local climbing gym. Uh, and so, you know, that was the, the real game changer. Mm. Yeah, that, that's so interesting. And it's probably worth clarifying because, you know, these days we still use the terminology, the weekend warrior. We use that phrase, but it really doesn't mean the same thing now um, that it meant back then. You know, back then before climbing gyms, you were literally only climbing on the weekends and then maybe doing your hundreds of pull-ups per day midweek. But <laughs> these days, weekend warriors climb in the climbing gym Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, yeah. And they're actually five-day-a-week climbers and, and only climbing on rock on the weekends. But that's a very, very different thing. That's right. And yeah, and so that that's the game changer is the ability for people to have climbing near their home, you know. And so that's, uh, you know, was revolutionary. You know, yeah. it's, you know, a hangboard in your house is one thing and it's nice or a pull-up bar in your house. But being able to, you know, go to a climbing gym and, you know, boulder for an hour, a couple of days a week, or being able to tie into a rope and do, you know, 50 foot lead routes indoors. I mean, that is game changing mm. for sure. And, you know, today's climbers, they can't imagine a world without climbing gyms. It's pretty, you know, it's quite interesting to think about uh, <laughs> because that is, that is normal to them. Right. Uh, but to my generation, it was just revolutionary, you know, to be able to uh, take, your training and your climbing indoors. And so, yeah, the, the definition of a weekend warrior is quite different now. <laughs> so it's, it's interesting. There's a lot of ways to tackle this, but, um, I guess, I guess what I'm curious about <clears throat> just in general, when I think about the evolution of climbing training, you know, there's been this wave, especially in recent years with so many more people getting involved with it and so much more literature and uh, peer reviewed research to look at from other sports and from climbing, <clears throat> there's a lot more science kind of coming into our training and people are starting to add more structure and things like that. But it's really interesting to me, you know, thinking about all those names that you mentioned, uh, John Backer, you know, Kalk, Alan Watts, uh, Todd Skinner, you know, some of these guys, Wolfgang, they were just doing really playful, intuitive things. They were just, you know, simplifying, thinking about what it was in their own climbing projects that was limiting them and then just making up things, you know, at the campsite that they could do like the backer ladder or hanging up little hangboards and, you know, Todd's mono pull-ups and all these things. It was just very intuitive and very playful, but it worked really well. And it's fascinating to me that so many of us, despite this influx of science and, uh, you know, structure and, and kind of more specific training, we're struggling to match the standards that those guys were climbing at 20 or 30 years ago. Um, so I, I, I guess I'm really interested to hear from your perspective what, I mean, you mentioned the hundreds of pull-ups per day, maybe not being very helpful. It was just kind of the best you guys had at your disposal, but what are some of the things from those early iterations of training, maybe some of your early ideas in your books, what are some of the things that have stood the test of time, maybe that continue to align with like some of the deeper principles of training? What are some of the things that people were doing back then that are still really good training methodologies? Yeah, well, you made some good points there, Stephen. And, you know, you spoke to the idea that the early training that was intuitive done by those elite climbers was, um, 
very often route specific. You know, Jim Collins famously was, you know, working on, um, I think, Rainbow Wall or Genesis, you know, one of those routes in El Dorado and found a, a building that he could adopt, uh, you know, and do some climbing on the building that simulated some of the moves and muscles used on that router. John Gill uh, in train for climbing in the needles, you know, he did the thimble, which at that time was the hardest free solo on earth in the early 1960s. The thimble of course is, uh, you know, the needles where there's conglomerate, the pebbles that have to be pinched. So John Gill, the university he was at uh, and would train like rings and rope at uh, in the gymnasium uh, at the university, uh, there was a, a concrete block wall with like bolts sticking out of it, I guess that had basketball baskets attached to it at one point. Um, so he saw those bolts sticking out of the wall and thought, hey, I can pinch those and climb on them <laughs> and it will simulate the thimble, you know, using your thumb and squeezing while you're pulling. And, you know, Wolfgang Gulick, uh, you know, the campus board was invented because in the Franken era, he was working on these overhanging routes where you're pulling on one or two fingers and you couldn't get your feet on much of anything. So there'd be a lot of dead pointing and, you know, uh, lunging or what we today call campusing. And he, along with a professor in Germany of exercise physiology, invented the campus board, you know, to take plyometric training that had been used in, let's say, jumping sports for the legs and transfer that training technology that was proven to work to climbing by building what we now recognize as a campus board. That was back in the 1980s. And so that came about because it was a way of training specifically the fingery dynamic, you know, arm movements of Frankenura climbing in Germany. And, you know, Backer had a crack machine, you know, that he built out of, um, you know, two by tens that simulated Yosemite cracks. And so, yeah, the early climbing or the early climbers to do training were clever and they would kludge together these very specific ways of training. And uh, despite some of the, you know, shenanigans that they would do, like, you know, walking a slack line while, ju while juggling, you know, that doesn't <laughs> develop any climbing skill. Uh, you know, so there are a lot of shenanigans that were done uh, and party tricks that were done that didn't transfer to climbing, but <laughs> some of the core training that was being done did, uh, in fact, transfer to them opening up new grades and new levels of climbing. And, um, uh, and, and now today we have a myriad of training tools and this flood of information. And yet I observe climbers uh, or I hear from climbers or work with climbers that can't get results or they end up injured. And it, it is because there's so much for them to pick from. It's easy to pick the wrong things. Hmm. It's easy to consume a lot of energy training, but in ways that aren't going to help you with your project. Uh, and so in some ways, it's even more challenging today than it was back then, because back then we had very limited tools and you, you include something that made sense given your route or project or area that you climbed at. But today you have a gym filled with tools or maybe a home gym filled with tools and you feel compelled to try to do everything. And, you know, I call that the shotgun approach for training for climbing, and it doesn't work. You know, mm. if you're going to the gym trying to do everything, uh, that's 
a pretty ineffective way to train. Uh, and, you know, there's some phenomena uh, that uh, we can get into, but, you know, people go to the gym and do a lot of everything. And initially they get better. And they're like, oh, wow, doing a lot of everything may be better. So I'm going to do even more of everything. And then they stop getting better and they end up getting injured. And what, what's going on there is if you're new to climbing or your first few years of climbing, if you go to the climbing gym and do anything, it'll make you get better. If you just tie into the rope and climb or just boulder, you will get better. So because you are also lifting weights and doing X and Y and Z at the same time, you can't conclude that X and Y and Z actually helped you climb better. It was just the fact you were going to the gym and climbing that made you better. To kind of get what I'm saying, mm -hmm. you know, yeah, yeah. so, you know, you're, you're, you're doing, you know, the 80, 20 rule is a good one to apply. I think you get 80% of the benefits out of about 20% of the things you do in the name of training. Mm. And so I often challenge people that I work with and myself, you know, I look in the mirror and say, Hey, you know, every year uh, you need to be reinventing your training and asking yourself what things need to be removed that aren't really helping you out or maybe hurting you. Mm. Maybe things that are making you sore or tempting injury that need removed from your program. And you know, you know, the goal should be to train smarter and ideally do a fewer number of things that will be impactful and to eliminate the things that just create fatigue. Because creating fatigue doesn't make you a better climber. You know, creating fatigue is part of the training process, but just because exercise creates fatigue doesn't mean it's making you a better climber. And so it needs to not only be somewhat specific to training, but it needs to address your personal weaknesses and constraints. And hence, it's pretty clear when you think about it that training for climbing is actually a pretty complex thing. Um, for a beginner, it's not. You just need to climb. You need to learn the skills. But the more advanced you become and the more years you're involved in climbing, the more nuanced the program needs to be, the more personalized the program needs to be. Uh, and so just uh, copying what's in some training video or what you see on some Instagram post or some cookie cutter program you downloaded off a website or my website or whatnot, or it, it's good to study that material, but you know, it doesn't mean it's the right thing for you. And so um, I'm a big fan of engaging you know, for climbers. You can study these things and over the course of many years, learn to self-coach at a very high level. And a lot of climbers do it amazingly, but there's also a lot of climbers that do a poor job of self-coaching and they end up injured or getting lackluster results. And that's where a very experienced coach, someone with a decade or more of coaching under their belt can really be a game changer because they can look at what you're doing based on not only the science of training and climbing, but based on their wealth of experience. And like a sage veteran doctor diagnosing a, a patient with some rare disease, a, a veteran coach, again, somebody with a decade or two or three decades of coaching under their belt, they've seen so much, they work with so many climbers that they can really pinpoint more precisely for an individual, maybe you know what needs to be done to open up the next grade. And you know, there's a lot of information out there, a lot of enthusiastic people getting involved in coaching climbing, and that's terrific. Um, I'm a fan of it all, but you in two years of becoming a coach, you don't have that 
experience of a veteran coach like a Robin Herbisfeld mm. uh, or, you know, uh, Udo Newman, uh, or, you know, you could name uh, many other veteran coaches that have been around for decades. And, uh, you know, you want to seek out those types of people if you can, because they are the ones with that vast experience that, uh, can help steer you. So again, the longer a person is involved in climbing, uh, five, 10, 15 years, your program needs to be more and more nuanced and refined to continue to get results. And of course, at the same time, the intensity has to go up uh, if you're going to climb higher grades. But you can't just take a shotgun approach. You need the opposite of that. You need a laser-like approach uh, that uh, is, you know, the target of which you're aiming at is something that a veteran coach is diagnosed as being your needs. Yeah. All that's really helpful. I want to focus in on a a point you made a few minutes ago. You were talking about how it's almost more difficult now because we have so much information. Um, We're we're drowning in this fire hose of information that's coming at us. And I certainly relate to that. You know, I'm, I'm someone who has been really curious about training for quite some time. I've read a lot about it. You know, I can see uh, when, when I think about this shotgun approach idea, that's something I've certainly struggled with. You know, I, I read an article or I hear anecdotes about using a hangboard and I can see that, oh yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's likely very helpful for my climbing. And yet I've never met anyone who's hangboarded their way to 514. You know, I could say the same thing about the deadlift, like the deadlift I can see how that would help, but I have I have yet to meet someone who's deadlifted their way to 514. Same thing with the rings or with kettlebells or any other of these training yep. implements. But I have met a lot of people who have climbed their way to 514 <laughs> without, without doing right. anything else. So I'd love to dig into, you know, thinking about this 80-20, what is the 20% that you come back to, you know, with people and, and maybe... Maybe it depends on the person and we can dig into that. But how do you think about, you know, using those supplemental tools along with just climbing these days? Like, how is all that? How are you thinking about fitting all that together? Yeah. Yeah. Well, first of all, talking about the 80-20 rule where 80% of the gains come from just 20% of the exercises. I, I'm speaking there to the things we do physically, like when you go to the gym, like exercises, whether it's hangboarding or campusing, and, you know, there's a, a myriad of exercises you can choose from, but there's only a small handful that really make a difference. Uh, you know, you, you could walk into a CrossFit gym and do all these different CrossFit exercises a few days per week, and it would generate a tremendous amount of fatigue and you might feel badass and you, you might get stronger, but it's not going to make you a better climber you know, going to a climbing gym and climbing, as you alluded to, you know, you need to climb. Climbing is a skill sport and it's not just technical skill, it's mental skill. Mm -hmm. I mean, as as important as footwork and sequence and uh, movement efficiency are, the same thing comes, you know, the mental domain, the ability to relax uh, at certain times and the ability to get intense at certain times and be focused and to challenge fears. And, you know, everybody talks about trying harder, but there's some routes that you almost need to try softer approach on. Hmm. Uh, so yeah, if it's a max boulder route or a burly crux move or something, you know, committing, yes, you trying harder, that mindset helps, but there can be a, a delicate route or a resistance route that 
a try softer approach where you're more stealth and um, grip the hold softer and move more efficiently and rest, you know, get all these, you know, rest, you know, all of those mental and technical skills you can improve at for decades. I, you know, I'm still, I just learned a knee bar five years ago, you know, climber <laughs> 40 years. And I just learned to, to how to use knee bars. Now I love knee bars. It's like, it's game changing for me as an older climber that I can get these knee scums or knee bars and rest in, in positions that I never knew how to do before. Uh, and so this is a sport where you just through learning, refining movement skills and learning new techniques and pressing out your mental game, you can continue to improve even if you've kind of maxed out physically. You know, we all have genetic constraints that we will come up against at some point. And through a really, you know, uh, nuanced training program, you know, you can continue to get stronger for many years as a climber. But most of your strength gains come in the first few years of climbing and first few years of training for climbing. And then after that, you are going to just eke out a few percent per year, maybe if you're lucky, but the mental and technical aspects, you can also eke out a few percent per year or more. And so there lies the potential to continue to improve for many years or decades. You know, climbing is a sport where injury aside, assuming you don't get injured and assuming you don't lose motivation, you will probably climb harder 20 years into the sport than you know, than at any time earlier, mm. uh, you know, uh, people like, you know, just to pick out some pro climbers, Chris Sharma, or, you know, he's just turned 40. Uh, and um, Adam Andra, who's soon going to turn 30, he can continue to improve for another five or 10 years, I'm sure. Uh, and so to a, a more regular person listening to this podcast, there's huge potential to continue to improve as long as you remain open-minded. Uh, and there's no single tool that is going to get you there, not the hangboard and not the system wall and not the campus board. If you become obsessed on one thing, that is when, first of all, injury often rears its ugly head, but also you may end up digressing as a climber. You know, if you put all your eggs into one basket, thinking that is the answer to the next grade, hmm. uh, you know, again, you need to do more than just get strong. In fact, my sons who are now 18 and 20 and out of the house, you know, they're young adults now, uh, but they grew up in a house with a climbing coach and, you know, I've heard all of my little sayings over all these years. And the one saying I'm fond of the last couple of years uh, in telling, you know, in talking to my sons about training and climbing is that, and I say it's something like this, Cameron, your fingers are strong enough right now to climb the next grade. Or Jonathan, you are strong enough right now to climb the next grade. You know, I, so, you know, that's dad, Eric, uh, <laughs> as my sons are obsessing over, you know, they need to have more grip strength. I need to measure more grip strength. And I'm like, dude, you've got enough grip strength to climb 15A. Hmm. It's other stuff you need to do. You, your core needs to be stronger. You need to climb more. Uh, you know, my sons were multi-sport athletes uh, growing up. So they didn't climb 12 months of the year. They climbed six months of the year. So they're kind of behind on the whole experience thing. And so them just climbing more is going to open up that next grade. They are strong. And I would propose that most people listening to this podcast are strong enough 
to climb in the next grade. So if they want to level up, it's not more hangboard training and not more deadlifting that's going to get them there. It's going to be probably some other stuff that they need mm. to do. And it might be technical and mental because their fingers may already be strong enough. And so again, everybody's different and everybody you know needs to be assessed and be properly prescribed a training program. But that's the stuff of a veteran coach. It's obviously not something you can do over the internet. That actually makes me want to ask another listener question. I have a question from Matt that feels relevant right now, and I'll read his whole comment. He wrote, I highly respect Eric Hurst for his countless knowledge and wisdom on training for climbing. It's one of the reasons I was able to sport climb 12A. So my question for Eric would be, what should an average person, an average climber look for in a coach? What are some of the do's and don'ts of hiring a climbing coach? Do you have any thoughts on that in addition to what you just shared? Yeah. Um, it depends on the climber, I would say. Okay. If you're a someone new to the sport, let's say in your first three years of climbing, the coaching that is needed is nothing, you know, um, that high end and nothing uh, that novel or, or, or scientific or advanced. In your first you know, three to five years as a climber, it's a pretty basic mission that you're on. And so I would say most climbing gyms probably have a coach who uh, has enough experience and knowledge to guide that person. And there's a lot of internet coaches now you know, people that are are new to it, uh, maybe their first few years of coaching, that would work, that would be great to help out that newer climber. Again, the person, you know, in let's say their first three to five years, because the coaching mission is fairly basic. Uh, so hopefully they can get, the coach can get it right. It, but it's as the, as the climber becomes more advanced, when they start um, coming up on like V double digits, let's say, you know, V8, V10, or uh, trying to get from 12A to 13A or 13A to 14A, or trying to go from being, you know, a, a local competition winner to a regional or national level competition winner. Mm. That is where um, you need that more veteran coach who has this wealth of knowledge, hopefully, you know, evidence-based largely, but also heavily experiential, you know, based on having worked with hundreds or thousands of athletes. And there's no replacement for that experience. And so somebody who's new in coaching, you know, they've only been doing it a year or two, can't possibly, and they might be really smart and really sharp and be able to do a fine job coaching a beginner. There's just no way they are going to have the knowledge that, you know, a Robin Herbsfeld Rabatou has. Mm. Uh, you know, who's been coaching climbers every day for the last, you know, 20 plus years. Uh, and so the more advanced you are and the higher your goals are, the more you should seek out one of those, you know, more rare coaches, you know, those more veteran coaches that have a good understanding of both the science and just raw experience, having worked with so many climbers and having kind of seen everything. Because, you know, I like to, you know, I've written in my books and articles over the years, you know, kind of the whole snowflake principle, you know, no two snowflakes are the same. Well, no two climbers, nor no two climbers training programs are the same. 
And so the whole cookie cutter program might work in the early stages, you know, go to the gym and climb for an hour and then do these few exercises. And that can work for a period of time, that very basic program. But again, the more advanced you are, uh, you need to address the uniqueness of the snowflake or of the individual and of their, you know, limitations. Uh, and so just saying, you know, do more hangboarding or do this deadlifting isn't going to make a difference. And it could arguably be counterproductive or get you injured, you know, if it's not what you need uh, or, you know, if it's being done in wrong uh, doses or too frequently, uh, you know, time spent resting is just as important as time spent training. And so, uh, you know, a good coach ought to be hopefully communicating that balance uh, and the role of nutrition. I mean, there's so many things that go into generating an effective training for climbing program. And the more important climbing is to you and the more advanced you become, the more that nuance needs to be uh, had. Mm. Yeah, your your point there is is really well taken. Um, but with that, I mean, you are very good at distilling things to general principles that we can all apply and you do that very well in your books. And I'd love to dig into that. I mean, you've written training for climbing. How many editions are there now? You said there's fourth edition is it's yeah, the fourth edition came out a few years ago. And, uh, you know, I have been updating that book every five to eight years, depending on my time to update it. And you know, <laughs> the, sci the science is moving quickly. Uh, mm -hmm. and so, uh, like the last edition, I really, uh, when it was published in 2016, I laid out kind of the state of the art then on energy system training, how to apply that to training for climbing, which is totally overboard and too much information for a beginner climber. But for a more advanced climber, it, there's a tremendous value in understanding the bioenergetic systems at work and how to target specific energy systems based on your uh, genetics and based on your climbing goals and your current strengths and weaknesses. There's a lot of rich value there uh, for a more advanced climber. So trying to update and include, uh, you know, new emerging topics or relevant, you know, one of the things that I need to update in the next edition relates to connective tissue training and tendon training. Uh, hmm. You know, uh, this is something that I've done podcasts on and I've written some articles on the last few years. And now there's some other coaches and clinicians kind of getting on board and agreeing that, you know, when you go to the gym, you're not just training your muscles, you're actually training your connective tissues. And so that's a whole new paradigm there. You know, the old school was, you know, that your connective tissues, your tendons, let's say ligaments are kind of set in stone when you um, finish puberty uh, and they change little through a life uh, beyond that. Uh, other than a slow degrade as you get older, uh, and that the muscles are where all the training adaptations are occurring. But in reality, we now know from research that there is as much protein turnover in your tendons as there are in your muscles uh, from high load training. Uh, and so for a climber, that's like that should be like sit up on your chair and say, wait a minute, you know, that maybe that's why my tendons are sore all the time is because there's this stimulus, not just to my muscles, but actually to my tendons as well. And I need to let the tendons recover and adapt 
just like you need to let your muscles recover and adapt. And, you know, so that's a really rich topic that we can't go down that rabbit hole here, but uh, that's something that I've done a lot of research and studying on, and I've actually done a couple, uh, you know, uh, talks at research conferences on, and uh, I, I need to update my training for climbing book to uh, explain that topic much more. And again, for a beginner, it's TMI, but for a more advanced climber, it's like, that should be the bullseye of your target uh, is, is the role that training plays in remodeling, stiffening, uh, and strengthening your connective tissues. And, you know, I think you look at a, an elite climber like an Alex Megos, and it's probably connective tissue adaptations occurring within his body more than muscle adaptations that are making him more powerful year over year. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, obviously you're training the entire system, but I'm just saying that the connective tissue adaptations are something that are very slow, remarkably slow that happen over the course of years, uh, not, you know, uh, much shorter time spans. And so that's a rich topic for more advanced climbers and for, you know, higher end coaches to get, uh, to, to study and get more up to speed on. Yeah, that that's really interesting. I mean, I'm I'm tempted to dive down the rabbit hole, even though you just said it's too much to tackle. But I just want to ask one general question about that. I'm just curious. Generally speaking, we don't have to go into the details here. We can save it for another time. But does that knowledge and the awareness of targeting our connective tissues over muscular adaptations does that have a practical implication for how we approach our training or our climbing? Um, is it, yeah, is it changing, 100%. changing the way you're programming sessions and things like that? hundred percent. Yes. And by the way, I did. Yeah. And by the way, I did uh, four podcasts, I think two years ago. So people will have to scroll back uh, in the training for climbing podcast a, a couple of years. I'll find them and I'll, I'll put them in the show notes. Yeah. 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 Do that. Yeah. You know, one of them's called like sinew training and one of uh, them is called like a revolutionary, a revolution in training, you know, because it was just new information that nobody had heard back then. And I had, a, I had climbers from around the world emailing me going, oh my God, Eric, you know, this topic, I've not heard it before. Um, and now people are starting to talk about it. You know, Tyler Nelson in Salt Lake City is doing a great job starting to communicate, especially with regard to uh, injury recovery, you know, the value of, uh, you know, thinking more in terms of connective tissue training. But to give some something actionable here, just in a nutshell, to answer your question, you know, how is this relevant? Well, let's take two different finger training exercises, one being isometric hangs on a hangboard and the other being campus training where you're, let's say, laddering up the campus board or you're doing double dinos on a campus board. Both exercises are training the same finger flexor muscles and the same tendons that, you know, uh, attach to the bones in your fingers. And for that matter, the ligament pulleys, the A2 pulley, you know, the infamous A2 pulley, (laughs) they're all being stressed. They're all, you know, through the loading of those two exercises. However, when it comes to the adaptations that result from those two different exercises, they're markedly different. And let me explain it this way. Connective tissues, tendons, you know, tendons connect contractile fibers, your muscles to the bone and pass the force that the muscles create to the bone to, you know, crimp that hole, to pull that pocket, to grab that, you know, jug. When you're doing a hangboard exercise, like let's say you're doing a 12 second max hang, 
uh, or maybe you're doing seven three repeaters and doing many sets. Those isometric exercises, when it comes to the tendons and ligaments in your fingers, uh, that isometric loading, actually um, it's good for improving tendon density. It uh, turns on the tenocytes that extrude collagen and help tendons and ligaments slowly remodel and become stronger and actually over years thicker. But those isometric hangs break crosslinks. The collagen in your tendons is aligned directionally, so uh, lengthwise, to pass that force from the muscles to the bones. But connecting the fascicles, the, the collagen fibers, are crosslinks. They're enzymatic crosslinks. And the crosslinks stiffen the system. Think of uh, the rafters of a roof, how it has cross bracing, those X's of two by fours. What's that do? That adds stiffness to the rafters. Well, in the same way, these enzymatic crosslinks that form between, uh, you know, between the, the collagen fibers add stiffness to the tendons. So when you're doing isometric hangs, you're breaking crosslinks you're actually making the system more lax. You are, and it's very subtle, but you're making the tendons a little more stretchy. Hmm. That is exactly what you want to do for tendon health. Like if you are someone that struggles with tendonitis, uh, a, a PT or a good coach will have you do isometric training, isometric loads, because it um, helps make the tendons more compliant by breaking those crosslinks. And that reduces stress on the system and can actually make it more healthy. But for performance, if you need to sprint fast or if you need to lunge or grab a hold fast, we're talking about rate of force development, you actually want a stiffer system. And it's plyometric exercises that make the system stiffer. Because when you're doing plyometric jumps, where you're having these um, explosive contractions, or when you're one, you know, seven nining up the campus board or whatever, you know, <laughs> doing your double dinos on the campus board, those plyometric contractions that, that are virtually instantaneous, you're only contracting for, you know, three or five milliseconds, and then you're off, you know, then you're, you're done contracting. You don't break crosslinks. In fact, your body adapts to those exercises by making more crosslinks. You have a net gain in crosslinks from plyometric training, whereas you have a net loss of crosslinks from isometric training. So whereas isometric training makes the system more compliant and potentially more healthful, campus training and plyometric type exercises, power exercises, make the system stiffer, which means you can apply force more quickly and there's less force lost in the transmission from the contractile fibers and the muscles to the bone. And if you get the force there more completely and more quickly, you express more power on the rock. Well, that's exactly the stuff of V15 bouldering or mm. 515 climbing is being able to express high you know, power movements. And so Two different exercises that both train the finger flexors and the, the tendons, the flexor tendons, one is hangboarding and one is campus training, have two markedly different 
results on the connective tissues. And so for a healthy climber seeking performance, you actually want to do more exercises that are brief and near maximal. Things like you know, three to five second max hangs that don't break cross links as much and the campus boarding and the system walling and the hard bouldering, things that are more power oriented. Whereas the climber that is more achy um, or perhaps injured or recovering from injury or trying to avoid injury because they have a predisposition to injury, they should do less of that plyometric training, perhaps none, and do mostly these slow, you know, isometric exercises that have benefits for both the muscles getting stronger, but also the tendons getting more compliant and therefore less prone to injury. And again, that it's a really rich topic that's hard to communicate and, and, and boil down to a nutshell, but I just maybe gave enough there to, to <laughs> give, a, give, give a little bit of understanding. And I have three or four hours of podcasts dedicated to this material that I did a few years ago that need updated because there's you know new research to leverage as well. But uh, if people want to begin their study, they could visit um, those, those older podcasts. Yeah, that, that, that's just incredible. Thanks so much for sharing that. I, I do want to ask one follow-up question there. I, I feel like I have to, uh, for the climber. And of course I'm always thinking of myself <laughs> with these questions, but for a climber who wants to focus on performance and is, you know, based on everything you just said, feels drawn to that tendon stiffening approach, how do you think about balancing that with uh, with like resiliency? I mean, I, I also want to make sure that I'm continuing to bulletproof my fingers, so to speak, or prevent yeah. any finger oh. issue. Like, yeah, do that's, I that's, cycle, that's, cycle them back and forth? Can I get 100%. the benefits of both? Okay. 100%. Yeah, exactly. So what you would do is during your off-season training, you know, now climbing is a unique sport that potentially it has no off season, but like in a convention, <laughs> in a conventional sport, like, you know, track and field or football or whatnot, you have a season. And, and so you, during your off season, you're trying to uh, gain strength and uh, health. And so you would focus more on those high load exercises that are slow and controlled that you can open up a new level of strength potentially with a hangboard program, let's say, but also make yourself more resilient and, and healthy uh, by not over-stiffening the system. Mm. Uh, and so you would do a training phase during your off-season. And then as you approach your performance season, whether it's your first climbing trip of the year or whether it's a World Cup, you know, the first World Cup event of the year or, or whatnot, you would then uh, make the program more dynamic and have more plyometric training uh, exercises over the course of like the last you know, two months heading into that performance season. And there's a lot more that would need adjusted as well. You know, that's the art of exercise prescription is being able to, you know, how to adjust and schedule everything in terms of intensity and volume. And, and, and but just with regard to the, the sinew training, the tendon training idea, uh, you would do more the isometric and, uh, you know, the, the training that improves the health of the system during the off season. And then as you head towards the on season, you want to train in a way that will maximize performance. And that means stiffening the system. And if you do too much of stiffening too long, that's when injuries begin to happen. You know, a, a lot of people have experienced, they get hooked on the campus board and they get great results the first few weeks, 
And then after doing the same campus board training and escalating the campus board training, after a few months, they end up with a, a pulley injury or a forearm injury of some kind, you know, and so the campus board turns into an injury board, uh, <laughs> an implement of injury. Mm. Uh, and, you know, that's from doing too much of that type of training. So it's it's got to be the proper dose, the minimum effective dose. And you there has to be a an arc to your training and a, as you mentioned, a cycling of your training. But heading into performance season, you would do things to stiffen the system. A good example of this, by the way, is uh, every year uh, they have the NFL Combine where they take the top college football players and they go to the Combine and they get timed on all these key performance indicators like the you know the 40-yard dash. And so those athletes, you know, they finish up their senior year of football and then they spend the next six months training for the Combine. Well, they spend the first four months, let's say, building out their strength, you know, stronger legs for sprinting, you know, heavy lifting and squats and whatever, you know, is obviously specific training to sprinting. And then the last month or two before the combine, they switch to doing more plyometric type training and actual sprints that stiffen the system. And their goal is to arrive at the NFL combine event with this you know, a system that's been tightened down like a sports car, you know, a very mm. stiff suspension and they can express, you know, peak force um, and, you know, ground reaction forces to run the fastest ever 40 yard dash time. And what ends up happening every year at that combine is a few of the guys get injured. They get hamstring pulls or, you know, other injuries or, in the weeks following the combine, they go to their first NFL training camp and they get injured mm. because the system has been made so stiff with the goal of peak performance in mind that they actually ended up getting injured. And so there's, you know, there is such a thing as being too stiff, but it's all re related to, it's all relative to the health of your muscles, your, your whole system. And so again, no two athletes are the same. And so you can't prescribe two climbers the same campus board program any more than you could prescribe to two climbers the or two football players the same sprinting program um, it, it needs to be personalized to both you know optimize results but hopefully avoid injury and you know again for an elite level climber that nuanced training is going to require a veteran coach hmm. well that that's really interesting um you know when you were describing the the longer duration hangs, either max hangs or doing repeaters or something for a month and then leading that into campusing, just as, just as, as an example. Immediately what came to mind is um, Mike and Mark Anderson's program. That's something that I've done a few cycles of, the Rock Climbers Training Manual. Uh, yep, sure. You know, periodization program where you, I mean, they have some other stuff first. You do some arcing, but then you have this focused month of hangboarding leading into more campusing and limit bouldering. So that's really interesting, whether they were aware of the crosslinks and the stiff, stiffening of the tendons or not, that's effectively what they were having um, people do in that program. And I'm curious how you think about that kind of a periodization approach versus what's becoming more and more common now, um, this, this nonlinear approach to climbing training where... Right. A lot of coaches are integrating some strength, some power, some endurance or, or energy system work within the same week and just building on that week on week. I actually got a, a question about this from uh, from Liam. He would like to know what Eric thinks about nonlinear training programs. Why does he like linear? Do you have thoughts on that? Do you have a preference or? 
Yeah, well, that's actually not really correct. I mean, I I have uh, prescribed many different types of programs uh, in my books. You open up training for climbing. I talk about the DUP, daily undulating periodization, which is a nonlinear training regime, which I actually in the book say it's probably the way to go for a more advanced climber who is climbing a lot that has kind of that never ending climbing season Mm. where you are um, over the course of a week hitting each energy system and doing, you know, know, some different types of training throughout the training week. Uh, There's great value in that Uh, for a, a newer climber or somebody getting started or somebody that has a glaring weakness uh, you know, a more conventional training program, linear program can be beneficial as well. You know, where you go through kind of those cycles, as you described the Anderson brothers, uh, you know, program, which they, they I, th- I think they described a longer cycle that might be 14 or 16 weeks. Um, you know, my cycles that I prescribe for climbers are typically more like seven to 10 weeks, uh, but it can be effective both ways. But again, if you're a year-round climber, uh, then it's tougher to put in a 10-week or 16-week training block if you have a trip or a competition right in the middle of it. You know, that wouldn't work so well. Uh, And so that's where kind of these nonlinear schemes are more valuable. But again, it has to be properly matched to the individual. Uh, And again, every individual has unique strengths and weaknesses uh, and, you know, and also other things like their age uh, or their loading history, their injury history, all those things need to be uh, accounted for. You know, myself being an older climber, always kind of fearing injury because, you know, as you get older, your connective tissues actually get stiffer. They form a bad type of crosslinks that relate to aging uh, that, you know, you can't really get rid of. It's one reason, you know, older people are more stiff and less fluid in their walking, even let's Hmm. say, is that uh, you get stiffer. And so me as a 57 year old climber, I have to worry about injury a lot more than my sons do at age 18 and 20. Uh, And so I do campusing in very small doses. uh, And I do a lot more of the isometric hangboard training. There's more value there and less risk. Uh, and so everything has to be, you know, in its proper balance. And, and again, a climber in their 20s or 30s, um, you know, might have, let me give you another example that I often prescribe, uh, again, with my sons, I am telling them is something they need to work on. And so often climbers don't realize they're, they have a limiting constraint that they're totally unaware of. I mean, it could be mental, technical, physical, but most often in the physical, there's a limiting constraint that they're not training at all. And, and uh, here's one that I, in, with the case of both of my sons, and I think myself, um, is end range strength. If you think about your pulling muscles, you know, we all do these different types of pull-ups. You can do them on all different types of tools and apparatus. Uh, but if you're doing pull-ups, you know, you're accelerating and momentum is kind of taking you into the top position. And then you go right back down and you repeat it. So whether you're doing one-arm pull-ups or two-arm pull-ups, you're you're generating, you know, uh, the most difficult part is getting started, the Mm. beginning of the range of motion. And then momentum kind of takes you into the top of the range of motion. And consequently, you don't develop um, strength 
in that end range. Like think about the lock-off position of a pull-up. Or think about on a climb, oftentimes you don't just pull in a hold, you actually bring it down underneath your armpit, like next to your chest, you know, that really low lock-off. What are you doing to train that? Hmm. You know, all those pull-ups aren't doing it. All those one-arm pull-ups aren't doing it. All that campus training isn't doing it so much unless you're really strong and can drive a campus run down to your hip like Matt Foltz can or <laughs> Kyra Condi can. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you're not, you know, most people aren't able to really train you know, uh, that end range strength, but it is so important on hard routes when the holds get farther and farther apart, uh, that end range, end range strength can be kind of a blind weakness that you're not aware of. Uh, and so you consequently need a specific exercise to, uh, to direct that, you know, there's different ways to do it with different tools and, you know, lock offs. And I, I don't want to get into it, but just the simple idea, just because, you know, my son Cameron can do 10 one arm pull-ups, he can do a one arm. He can do a one arm pull up with a forty pound dumbbell on his other hand. He's really strong, Jeez. but the ability to lock off and, and press down on a hold isn't being trained by doing one arm pull ups with a forty pound dumbbell on the other hand. Hmm. Uh, you know, so there's something missing there that, you know, even though he's really strong, and again, you need to uh, have that perspective. You know, that a veteran coach can provide and that assessment. And hopefully, you know, can identify personally what is your limiting constraint. And it's never just one thing. It's, uh, again, you know, designing a training program, it's like, if you're doing it right, it's like 3D chess. Because, (laughs) you you know, you have to coach, you have to coach not only, you know, and decipher what is the physical limitation of an individual, what is holding them back from achieving the next grade. But you also have to be able to assess their movement skills. You have to be able to try to uncover their psychology, you know, and what might be limiting them. And very often the that internal voice that a climber has, the way they talk to themselves can be their biggest weakness. Uh, you know, I've often written in my book that, you know, those mental weaknesses that we have, we all have, you know, might be fear of falling. It might be, you know, um, fear of failure, embarrassment. You know, there's a lot of different mental issues a climber could potentially have. They can be like adding a 10 pound weight, an invisible 10 pound weight belt around your body. You know, that Mm. you're hauling up every climb and every boulder Mm. because there's this, these, these psychological issues that are holding you back. So again, very often it's not stronger fingers that are the answer. It's something more nebulous that needs to be uncovered and uh, worked on. Yeah. Yeah. A good coach almost has to be a therapist to some extent. Yeah. You know, and (laughs) yes. And, and I'll tell you, that's what these, these rare veteran coaches are really good at. And they may not have a degree in exercise science or a sports psychology but they have 20 or 30 years of working with athletes, uh, you know, day in and day out. Uh, and therefore they have this knowledge that encompasses all of those areas. And so, no, they're not a sports psychologist, but they really understand the mindset of hard climbing and can communicate that to the climber and coach that. Uh, and so they're able to, I think that's what I do. Like if somebody picks up a copy of training for climbing, uh, there's only one chapter on finger training. 
but there's 10 other chapters that cover the full gamut. And that's because, you know, it's not one thing that's going to help you become a better climber and stay uninjured over the long term. It's doing a lot of things, a lot of little things right and avoiding some common pitfalls. Uh, and I, and I guess that's one thing I kind of pride myself on is uh, over my 30 years of coaching and studying research and literature and networking with other coaches around the world, I've tried to become knowledgeable in all of these other areas. So do I have the knowledge of a sports psychologist? No, not to that caliber. Do I have the knowledge of a Olympic weight coach? Nope, not to the same level. Uh, do I have the movement knowledge of a uh, specialist, you know, movement coach? Nope. But what I do have is a, a very high degree of knowledge in all of these different areas. And so if you go to a, a, um, a strength coach, they're going to prescribe a strength training program that you will be convinced is going to be the difference maker. And if you go to a sports psychologist, they will give you a psychology program that they will say will be the difference maker. If you go to a nutritionist, they will give you nutritional guidance and a program and foods to eat and not eat and all that stuff. That That is the magic bullet. But in reality, none of them are magic bullets. You need to actually be doing well in all of those areas. Mm. Uh, and so... I think that's kind of what I've tried to bring to the sport through my books or through my podcast is that I cover this, you know, you know, kind of A to Z of climbing performance. Uh, and there are probably experts in any individual area that uh, is better than me. Um, I certainly um, am imperfect in my coaching. Uh, I'm always striving to be curious and uh, do better, but I think, you know, this wealth of knowledge that I've accumulated in all of the relevant topics is what I uniquely bring to the sport, uh, you know, and the ability, like you said, to uh, to distill it down to actionable items uh, for the, the climber. Yeah. Yeah, that that's great. I mean, combining all those things, it really does seem like this force multiplier where it's not just the sum of the parts. There's some exponential oh, yeah. factors going on there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I did a podcast a few months ago about how like, you know, climbers spend, we spend so much time strengthening our fingers because it's the obvious thing to do. And now there's all this technology, you know, where you can measure your finger force. And so you can get obsessed on measuring fingers force, and then you become obsessed on how can I increase that finger force month over month to the point that you're measuring it every time you go to the gym. And so it's like your goal you're not a climber anymore. You're just someone trying to train for higher finger force. And there's so many other things that affect climbing. And like I said about my sons, for them to fully utilize the finger force they have, they need to have a strong core. Uh, I don't think there's any climber out there that couldn't benefit from a stronger core. And I'm not just talking about doing one exercise for core, but a variety of exercises to make your you know, kind of a comprehensive core training program because you know, applying finger force on the rock, especially overhanging rock, demands a strong core. It's all about connecting your fingertips and toes. And, and just like stiffening a sports car, connecting the front wheels and the back wheels with a stiffer suspension to apply force to the ground more quickly, 
a climber, you, you can have strong fingers and strong toes, but if the suspension is compliant, if you've got spaghetti between the fingers and toes, you can't apply much force. But if you have steel between the fingers and toes, you can apply the force in a very meaningful way. Uh, and so again, there, that's something actionable. I think every person listening to this podcast, including you and me, Stephen, could do a better job at stiffening our core, you know, through appropriate training. Um, and I spent 30 years just kind of giving lip service to my own personal core training. Interesting. Yeah, I would do three different things. And I'm like, well, I can do a front lever. My core is strong enough. And a front lever is just like one aspect of core training. And your toes aren't connecting to anything. So it's not even all that climbing specific. It's a great party trick. Um, you know, It is. It's badass. <laughs> yeah, but there's a lot more to core training. So, you know, that that's one of my own flawed ways of thinking where, you know, 20 years ago, I thought, hey, because I can do a front lever, and hold it for 10 seconds, my core is strong enough. I was wrong. And I lost 20 years of training core because of that false belief system. And so all of us have those limiting belief systems, you know, where we falsely believe that one thing is the answer or that we're good enough at this other thing. Uh, and those can be our biggest limiting constraints. And so why, again, a good coach is going to spend up, you know, I'm good friends with Alex Megos's coaches, Patrick and Dickie. And, you know, when I got to know those guys and kind of dug into how they have trained Alex over the last 12 years, it became very clear to me that they were training a human being, not a machine. Uh, they were training, you know, a person who had this whole life, you know, that yes, climbing was very important too, but they had to, you know, address all the things that that individual was dealing with in their life, whether it's school or family or relationships, all of those things have kind of a invisible role they play in your training program. And just like your, you know, how you think and operate, how effective you are as an individual. And so while a person might come into Cafe Craft in Nuremberg and see Patrick or Dickey with Alex at the campus board or on the spray wall doing some specific drawer exercise that you're seeing, you might conclude that that is the magic. Mm -hmm. No, that's not the magic. It's just one piece of this large puzzle, this tapestry that they painted in working with Alex for 12 years. Um, and, you know, again, that is the, you know, for the beginning level climber, you don't need that level of coaching, but the more advanced you become and the more important climbing is and reaching your climbing goals are, you, you need to seek out and find individuals that you can work with long-term, not just buy a program for a month, but work with, you know, over the long-term that really gets to know who you are uh, and know a lot more than just what your finger force is. Anybody can test finger force and give you a fingerboard training program. That doesn't take much of a coach, but it's all that other stuff that becomes more and more meaningful with every passing year that someone is uh, in the sport. And that, that's why I've largely stopped working with climbers, you know, because I just don't have the time to do it right. Uh, and in certain cases I will do consults, but uh, I, I lay out up front that, you know, if you're really going to get good coaching, you need to work with somebody personally. I'm a, a big believer in that, especially at the higher levels. 
But that's yeah, all of that's just fantastic. I, I have uh, I have to ask a question about your own core training now. That was that's so interesting to hear you say you feel like you lost twenty years, and you know, there's so much talk about hangboarding and finger training, and I think there's plenty of information out there, probably too much, <laughs> but I, I think a lot of climbers get it. You know, maybe some supplemental finger training along with just hard bouldering is going to get your fingers as strong as they need to be. But I do still see a lot of people just kind of floundering around as far as core training goes. You know, there's a lot of people still just wrapping up their climbing session with 15 minute abs and just going until they're feel like they're going to throw up and they have all this burn in their in their abs from crunches and crunches and whatever else. And then on the flip side, you have some people doing real strength movements like deadlifts or ring training or things like that. But I've certainly gotten lost uh, in the weeds on that side of things and, you know, had this period where I was, I got a lot of benefit from the deadlift and really saw it affect my bouldering in a positive way. And then before I knew it, I was like reading about training programs for improving my deadlift. <laughs> I was doing like supplemental training just to get better at the deadlift and I'd kind of lost the plot there. So yeah. I guess I'd love to hear, you know, what is it that, what are some of the things that you wish you had started doing 20 years ago or, or what are some of the things you're doing now to focus on relevant specific core strength for climbing or maybe what are you having your sons doing you can kind of tackle that any way you'd like right. but yeah i'd love to hear how you're thinking about core training for climbing yeah well I, I, again i my my old way of thinking which i think was very flawed and held me back uh was that you could do one or two things um and so me as a gymnast in high school uh, i learned to do a front lever and an iron cross in high school and um though i can't do an iron cross anymore i can still do a front lever. So all those years, I equated being able to do a front lever with having a strong enough core to climb hard. Uh, and I also equated like knocking out a hundred crunches at the end of the workout, as, as you mentioned, you know, many people do that because it's like a basic core exercise as being good as well, because it would like create fatigue. Um, and like, if you do a hundred or 200 crunches with good form, you, you know, you get kind of the ab equivalent of a pump. You know, you get sore there, <laughs> yeah. you know, sore, sore and crampy there. And so you do that and you do some front levers and it's easy to convince yourself, Hey, that was a hell of a core workout. Yeah. But really you just, you just trained two things that actually aren't very climbing specific. Like I said, the front lever, though there are moves on a boulder or a roof that you might hold a front lever type position. If you're climbing right, most of the time you have your hands and feet, your fingers and toes on the rock, and you're using your core in a different way than the front lever. Uh, and same thing with crunching. How often do you crunch on a route? You know, you might pull your knees back up after your feet cut off, um, you know, but that's hip flexors as much as it is your abs. Uh, and so, you know, crunching arguably is not even good for your spine, uh, you know, if you do it in high doses for many years. And so, you know, I was kind of off target there on my own training and the training that I was prescribing. But uh, I, I course corrected, uh, of course, as I, you know, I'm not afraid to admit when I'm wrong and correct things. And, you know, so training for climbing fourth edition, which came out in 2016, I, I did most of the writing in 2015. I put in a whole chapter on utilizing, you know, doing more comprehensive type core training. And the one thing that I put in the book and that I was doing and my family was doing was deadlifting. Um, now you can't deadlift like a power lifter and you can't deadlift like a crossfitter and you can't deadlift like a bodybuilder. You know, you have to deadlift like a climber because mm. 
you don't want to put on all this mass on your lower body. That will be counterproductive. And, and, and it is. Anybody who says it's not is lying to you. Uh, you want to get stronger without putting on mass. And you can do that by strengthening the nervous system and you know, the connective tissues getting slowly stiffer. You can develop you know, posterior chain strength from deadlifting without gaining weight. Now, genetics play a role. Uh, some people do respond with weight gain. Others, if they're on the right program, don't. But, uh, you know, in, in that fourth edition of Training for Climbing, I put in a section on, you know, uh, deadlifting for, for weight training. And I, I think I was the first coach that I know of that was prescribing it, you know, in, in 2015. But now a lot of coaches, you know, are prescribing deadlifting. Uh, and hopefully low rep, high weight deadlifts with good form. You know, it's a, a, an exercise that has to be done with proper form or you can get injured. Um, and so deadlifting, again, it's not a magic bullet, but it's one of maybe five or six different exercises that you want to think about training total core. Your core is all the way around your torso. Think of everything between your shoulders and your hips as being core. So crunches address your abdominals, just one portion of the core, the front lever, more pecs, you know, scapular stabilizers, shoulders, kind of that upper core. Deadlift is more posterior chain, though your whole core tightens down. You, you have to create tremendous stiffness, you know, in your torso to keep your, you know, spine properly aligned. Uh, but it's more of a posterior chain exercise, training hamstrings and glutes and spinal erectors and such. You know, so cobbling together five or six exercises. Another one that I'm a huge fan of is planking and, and uh, not just doing these bodyweight planks, but progressing to doing weighted planks. You know, mm. I, I did a plank as part of my workout last night and I put on a 16 pound weight belt and did a six minute plank sequence. Freaking oh. hard. That's a hard <laughs> sequence to do. Um, yeah. And it's easy to get sloppy and have bad form as you fatigue. And so you got to be disciplined to call it quits when your form degrades. Uh, you know, any exercise, uh, especially rigorous near limit type exercises should be done in proper form and then ended when form can't be maintained. Uh, but, but doing those types of weighted planks uh, was game changing for me the last season or two. And I still have a long way to go. I have a lot of ground to make up and I'll probably never make up the lost ground of, you know, training poorly in that area over those years. Uh, and there's a lot of climbers, you know, also, um, you know, nobody's training perfectly. You know, your goal every year should be to try to do things better, cut away some ineffective things and add some things that are more relevant and more effective. And so for me, it was, you know, uh, adding more variety, adding a few new uh, core exercises that I had not done before. Uh, and I feel the difference on, on the rock for sure, as mm. you said, you did, you know, when you uh, did some core training. Um, and uh, yeah, so, it, you know, there's, no single exercise, you know, whether you're talking about finger training or core training, you can't just think that there's this magic bullet exercise or approach. Again, the 3D chess analogy is perfect <laughs> because that's what playing climbing performance is. It's mm. 3D chess. Yeah, yeah, that's <clears throat> that's great. And I, I, I want to clarify, I mean, I did eventually get too far into the weeds with the deadlifting and, and kind of lose the plot. But I had a season, I think it was a winter training cycle where I was deadlifting really like easy strength style, minimal effective dose, maybe two or three days a week, but doing, I think I was doing either three sets of two or two sets of three, really low volume, higher weight. And I was combining that with a lot of steep bouldering. 
<clears throat> just just a couple days a week, but really high quality bouldering sessions. And I had a home wall at the time that I had built, and I was really setting a lot of hard boulder problems with small in-cut feet where you really had to keep your toe on as you did longer moves, yep. a, lot of, a lot of tension. And so I think I was able to build some strength through deadlifting in the posterior chain and then apply it to the climbing wall week on week. And when I went on this trip to Bishop, after a couple months of that, I've, I've never felt stronger in my ability to drive through a toe on a steep wall. And it, it yeah. really was amazing. But yeah, that was really smart of you, Stephen, because, you know, one, you know, one issue I also had and my sons had is our, you know, we train mostly at home here. We have a home wall and a tread wall and all these other tools. Uh, and, you know, if you go to a gym, go uh, look at their spray wall or, uh, you know, the moon board or, you know, system wall of any type, um, the problems are dynamic, they're big moves, they're relatively good holds. And so you end up climbing generally with good feet. You know, when you're in a climbing gym, you know, the holds stick out from the wall and they tend to be mostly large holds. Uh, well, if you really want to train your core, you want not only small fingers, but you want small feet. And so what you described where you had the small footholds that you had to toe down on, that really engages the posterior chain. And so that is part of a good core training program is actually seeking out, or if you have a home wall setting, traverses or boulder routes that have small feet. Uh, or here's something novel, set a route with medium-sized hands and small feet. Mm. And so instead of obsessing on the arm and hand movements, make the purpose of the exercise, not training your grip and your upper body, but the purpose of the exercise being training that toe down and that posterior chain stiffness. And, and along the same ways, separate the hands and feet. You know, you get on um, a moonboard problem. There's a lot of like lunging and then high stepping and, you know, but it's, it's when your hands and feet are far apart, like when you're reaching over your head, but have your legs extending to near the straight position that core stiffness is most important. When you're all compressed in a box, you know, your, your core is more lax by necessity. But when you're stretched out on a boulder or on a movement, the, the stiffness is critical. And so again, as a method of training on the wall, problems with small feet, problems where your hands and feet stay separated or set up a traverse where your hands and feet stay separated the whole way. Mm. So there's no high stepping, there's no towing down and rocking over and posting up, none of that stuff. That is a good way to train very specific uh, stiffness through the posterior chain that really uh, applies well to climbing. Uh, and you know, you climb indoors with these big footholds, but then you go outdoors with middle footholds there's something lacking there uh, for a lot of climbers. And again, it's one of those, um, you know, um, I'm stretching for the right word, but something you're not aware of, you know, it's kind of an unknown thing that's holding you back that it's unintentional that you're climbing at the gym, always on good feet. Uh, but when you get outside with bad feet on a steep boulder or a steep route, you're, you're lacking in that posterior chain. And so the deadlifting would address the muscles and then the, the, the wall climbing or the wall training that we talked about would, would bring it home and kind of apply it to the rock. And so those two together, those two coupled together is quite powerful. And that's something I do a lot of with my sons is coupling a physical exercise with then a climbing specific application of that strength. Hmm. You know, that form of complex training, if done right, 
um, and in proper dose is quite powerful. Uh, and again, you're not going to find that in my book and you're not going to find it on an internet cookie cutter program. It's something you would need to probably work with a coach in person to really help you cobble that together in a uh, beneficial way. Mm. Well, that's that's great. Thank you for all that. I, I really like the uh, traversing on decent hands but small feet idea. That's that's a cool. Yeah, isn't that a novel concept? Yeah, know? it is. So, so so often, you know, we're locked into like our fingers are the limiting constraint, and they can be, but there are so many other things that are limiting constraints. And here's the thing: if you have a weak core, your fingers are being overcharged every time you grab a hold on a, on an overhanging route. You're being overcharged if you have a, a weak core. Uh, and by stiffening your core, and by the way, improving your flexibility as well, your ability to move your center of gravity into proper position, you are being overcharged uh, on your finger force. And, and just like dead body weight, if you're carrying 10 extra pounds of fat around your waist, uh, or if you're carrying extra muscle mass that you don't need because of, say, inappropriate training, that is also dead weight that is overcharging your fingers. Uh, and so, again, the goal is to optimize all of those areas. No single area is the answer or the magic bullet, but it's trying to optimize things in all of those areas. And so you can't just obsess on, I have to lose more weight to be stronger on the rock. Well, losing weight to a point can help, but losing weight to the point of being unhealthy Will make you injured and miserable and it's no way to live life you know mm. and so that's finding the the, uh, the happy medium uh, what is optimal for your genetics and your lifestyle um, and then trying to dial in all of those you know other influential areas equally well uh you know that will get you to the promised land <laughs> 10 or 20 years from now of maybe approaching your genetic potential but for most climbers they're not even close to that yet because there are so many other things that they can potentially dial in. But the first thing you need to do is become aware of the weakness um, or the flawed way of thinking or the flawed way of training. And again, circling back to the idea that every year you should be trying to kind of reinvent your training uh, uh, and uh, evaluate and uh, design a more effective program. Now, if you're someone who walks into the gym every day reinventing your program, then that's a very <laughs> flawed strategy as well. You know, my friend Steve Bechtel is fond of pointing about, you know, pointing out, you know, people who just are always changing up their training program, trying a new training program and never sticking with something for 10 weeks. How do you know if something works? <laughs> you know, if you don't stick to it for a period of time. And so there needs to be this natural evolution uh, and uh, you can't have this day-to-day -day trial and error because you're never going to suss out what works and what doesn't. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, to that point, do you have like a, a minimum that you like to shoot for, for committing to a, a program, like a minimum program length? Well, I, yeah. I mean, for me uh, and, you know, really for my sons, we all do a daily undulating periodization where we hit each energy system once or twice per week. And so there's a lot of variety in our training, but there's a method to the madness, mm. uh, you know, because we are all in a position now we're trying to climb for performance most of the year because we have occasional trips and weekend ventures and, and such. So, um, 
you know, so, but that's us, you know, everybody's different. Uh, if you're going to go on a more of a linear, a, a more entry level or intermediate climber, that's going to have a, a more periodized program. I think a 10 week training cycle, uh, can be quite beneficial, uh, you know, that has a very comprehensive, uh, strategy that is being rolled out. Uh, and then again, an elite climber who is really concerned about performance and staying, keeping all the energy systems up to snuff is kind of doing the opposite of that, where it, it might from afar look like a shotgun approach because they're doing every week a wide variety of things, but there's actually a method to the madness, you know, mm -hmm. like how we, you know, doing strength and power one workout and then doing power endurance, a separate workout because they're two, they're, they're calling into play two different energy systems uh, to two different degrees. Uh, and so they are best being separated into, into individual workouts. And um, yeah, so I, I mean, I try to, you know, hesitate, uh, you know, on a podcast or if I just run into somebody at the crag, you know, I try not to give overly specific training advice because that I, I'm more likely going to miss the target without knowing more about the individual mm -hmm. uh, and such. Well, I want to pivot to the other major topic that I that I mentioned at the start of the conversation that I want to focus on with you. You've mentioned your sons a number of times, and you just talked about you know training with them at home. I would love to hear what are some of the key differences between their training. Hey, friends. Just a quick note before you go, Eric is the founder of a company called Fizzy Vantage. He started the company with the mission to bring science-backed supplements to the climbing world. And he is offering listeners to this podcast 15% off your first order. So you can check out his line of products at fizzyvantage.com and use the promo code NUGGET15 at checkout. You can find a link right there in your podcast app. And as always, you can find links to that and everything we talked about in the show notes at thenuggetclimbing.com. We talked about Fizzy Vantage and some of his products and the science behind them in part two, among many other topics. So be sure to tune in next week for part two. And in the meantime, much love to you all. And thank you so much for listening. Shake it up, stop when the clock hits 13 Sing one, one, two, three, four Cause, cause, cause No one can do it like we do it Like we do it, like we do it Cause no one can do it like we do it Like we do it, like we do it Cause no one can do it like we do it Like we do it, like we do it Cause no one can do it like we do it Like we do it, like we do it